Yeah, it's been a couple weeks, hey? Well, here we are. And a great Sunday to be here as we kick off a new sermon series, as you can see, called Stand. We're going to be looking for the next couple weeks through the first few chapters of the book of Daniel. Now, as you look at that picture up on the screen, we think of this idea of standing, of standing out, of standing in, of standing against, of standing with, of standing strong. Sometimes in those moments in our lives, it feels like it's just us on a mountain peak and there's no one around. And man, I am exposed as I stand up. I think every person probably has an understanding of what that feels like a little bit. In some point, in some aspect of their lives where you felt this need to take a stand. And maybe you didn't always actually follow through on that, but you felt the need. You know what that feeling feels like within you, where you feel like you need to take a stand. All people experience this. Where we have these principles, these values. Perhaps there's some freedoms, some, some aspects of our identity. That something happens in the world around us and we feel this need that we need to stand up to defend those. We need to draw a line in the sand and say this goes no further. Somebody needs to say something. Somebody needs to do something. In small ways this may show up in our families of origin. If you think back to your family of growing up or the family that you may be raising in your home today, there are certain principles and values that mom or dad or maybe even a sibling will take a stand and say, I will not condone this. Perhaps things, common rules, like if you're going to be out late, you've got to call to let us know so we don't worry. If you're going to take the car, you've got to fill it up with gas before you bring it back because I want to go to work in the morning and I can't go with an empty tank of gas. Sunday afternoon, dinner is not optional. Mom's pot roast is not an optional thing. It's a principle to be defended. Mom's pot roast. Sometimes there's more serious things that happen as well. If you watch the media lately, we know that there has been people within our nation, the First Nations, who have felt the need to take a stand against a pipeline. Now, they've chosen to do so in ways that were disruptive, in ways that were very public, in ways that were sometimes controversial manners as they blocked railways. But there was this need. Something in them rose up that says, I need to take a stand. People of faith in particular feel this. Whether we're speaking of somebody who's, who's Christian or otherwise, this need to take a stand. Because there's convictions, there's values that they are willing to stand up for and defend. I, I came across uh, an interesting story, kind of a humorous story, of a small church down in the southern states one time who uh, was very, very involved in their community. And then one day they heard that there was a new entrepreneur who was going to come along and wanted to open up the very first bar in their town. And they thought, we can't allow this to happen, we need to take a stand. And so they went to this entrepreneur and they said, we, we are not a, in favor. We are directly opposed to you opening this establishment in our community. And he wasn't interested in what their opinions were and he continued on with the project. And so the church thought, I know what we'll do. We will hold prayer vigils. We will pray against the opening of this establishment. And that's what they started doing. And then one night after they had gone through a few nights of these prayer meetings, a storm came through town and lightning struck the under construction tavern and burned it to the ground. Now, the church people thought, man, we're going to claim some victory in the stand that we took against this entrepreneur. And they were pretty pleased with themselves until the would-be bar owner came and took a stand against them and sued the church for being liable because their prayers had led to his tavern being burned down. <laughs> well, when they stand before the court, before the judge, suddenly the church is not so eager to take a stand anymore. And they're claiming, we have no responsibility. We had nothing to do with that. But the tavern owner pressed on and said, you are liable for what happened. 
And then the judge finally took a stand. And when the judge took a stand, he goes, I have no idea what I'm going to do with this. As I look before me, I see that based upon your testimonies, it appears that I have a bar owner who believes in the power of prayer and a church full of people who don't. (laughs) Perhaps you can think of a moment where you felt the need or a call to take a stand for something. Did you do it? You know, in addition to that question, did you do it? How did it feel? I think we'd all agree it's hard to do. Whether you follow through or not, it is a hard thing to do. It's even hard to know how to do it properly. It's one of the toughest parts of the Christian life is to stand out, to stand up, to stand in, to stand against, to stand strong. What are the next five weeks? As we look at the first few chapters of the book of Daniel, sometimes referred to as the, as the court narratives, as Daniel finds himself in the king's court, we're going to walk through some incredibly awesome stories. Some wonderful stories of Daniel and his friends who took a stand for God. And as we look at these, what, what my hope and what my prayer is for us is that we will find the hope, the confidence for us to stand in any situations that we may find ourselves in as we go about our lives in this world. And so we'll begin today with Daniel chapter 1. Feel free to open your Bibles or in your phones to go to Daniel chapter 1. If you need to find it in the table of contents and the Bible in the pew in front of you, feel free to take a moment to do that now. Daniel chapter 1. It not only tells us the first opportunity that he had to take a stand in the king's court, but also serves as an opportunity for an introduction to the entire book. So while you're finding that passage, allow me to take a moment to give you a little history lesson that will provide context for the stories that are going to follow. You see, the story that we're looking at in Daniel actually begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Where God established a special relationship, a a special covenant promise with Abraham and all of his descendants. And it was a promise to make them a great nation. That they would be his people and he would be their God and he would allow them to prosper and come into a land where they would would live and prosper and rule. And and God followed through on his promises. It it took a few centuries for for the nation to grow. But the time eventually came where, where God brought them into this land. To this promised land that they could live and settle in. Now the promise came freely, but it also came with some conditions, some some expectations upon the people that if the people were going to preserve their relationships with one another, if they were going to preserve their relationships between them and God, there were certain laws or certain rules they had to follow that we refer to quite often as the Ten Commandments and, and some other laws that we find in the first few books of the Bible. And in summary of all of these laws, God says, you know what, if you obey them, if you are faithful to obey these things, I will bless you and you will prosper in this land. But, but at the same time, if, if you don't, if you disobey them, then, then, then you'll be bringing curses upon yourself. And I'll have no choice but to judge you in light of your disobedience. Well, if you read through the Old Testament, or if you're familiar with the stories, you know that there are wonderful seasons of obedience. And the people did prosper. And they did flourish for a time. But there's also many more times of disobedience. And while God promised to bless them and did bless them through times of obedience, he he had to be consistent in following through in the times of disobedience. But he didn't just immediately smite them the first time they stepped out of line. He he would call them back to himself. He would give them another chance. He would send prophets to warn them and remind them of of what he had promised them and to, to call them back and give them second and third and fourth and fifth chances. But eventually the day came where God had to be consistent and true to his word. And he eventually... Brings the judgment. 
And the judgment he brings, we read about in the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah receives a word from the Lord, and Jeremiah says to the people in, in chapter 27, speaking on behalf of the Lord, he says, with my great power, with my outstretched arms, I made the earth and all of its people. And I have the right to give that to whomever I please. And now, I give all of your countries, I give all this land, this territory, this place that I called you into, I give all of your countries into the hands of my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon became the instrument of God's judgment against his people. As what is kind of modern day Iraq in the Babylonian area pressed westward and defeated all of the nations that we would consider the Middle East today. And as he expanded his empire, it became known as the Babylonian Empire. And this is where we pick up the book of Daniel in the story of Israel today. Where we read in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. See, when Nebuchadnezzar came into a land, he didn't just destroy the nation. What he would do is he would thoroughly defeat it. He would completely plunder it. And then he would make the existing sitting king kind of a vassal. That, that means that he was like a puppet ruler who he would come to him and say, I'll give you the chance to stay in your palace and to, to kind of rule over your people. But you're going to do my will. You're going to give them the laws, the commands, the instructions I want them to follow. And if you agree to that, I'll allow you to stay where you are. And oh, by the way, you need to pay me a huge sum of money on a regular basis for me to allow you to continue to do this. If you don't, I'm going to poke out your eyes, take your decks out, and I'll put a puppet king in there in your place. The choice is yours. This is kind of how the plan went as he expanded his kingdom. Now, not only does this establish the setting for the events that happen in the book of Daniel, it also introduces a key theme that we need to be aware of. And the key theme is this, is that God is in control. This is going to be in the first few verses of the book and all the way through the stories that we look at. Is that God is in control. You see, as this nation was besieged and defeated, as their temple was looted, as their leaders were carried off into exile, a lot of people would have thought, God has abandoned us. But the thing we need to understand right off the start is that while Nebuchadnezzar's might and his victory may have been the occasion for the fall of Jerusalem, it was not the reason for the fall of Jerusalem. You see, God was still in control. None of this was beyond his plan and beyond his awareness. Now one challenge you have when you have an expanding kingdom like Nebuchadnezzar had is that you have this rapidly expanding empire with territory and people you need to oversee and govern. And so you need to find reliable, capable people to stand in the gaps for you. And part of his plan to control this region and to maintain it was to capture and to reprogram the leaders of the defeated nations. And we start to see this taking place in the book of Daniel as well, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, where the king orders the chief official to exile from Judah all of the royal family and all of the nobility, essentially taking the best of the best, the, the fittest, most handsome, most intelligent, most aptitude towards learning young men, and carrying them off to Babylon. And when they arrived in Babylon, they were enrolled in a three-year program to enculturate them to the point where they would forget and abandon their old faith and identity and instead embrace the Babylonian identity. And when that had happened, they could then enter into service before the king. 
And so as these, these young men came into the king's court for this reprogramming, they were taught the beauty of the Babylonian language, literature, history, and, and religious beliefs. They were given cushy accommodations. They were given daily food and wine directly from the king's table himself. The, the finest of the best was sent to them for their food. They were fully immersed in the prevailing culture in which they found themselves in every way. And you know what? It was kind of appealing. Yes, there's the educational side of it, but look at my accommodations. Look at, look at the provisions that I'm receiving. These guys, these guys aren't so bad, are they? It's kind of appealing. You know, it's a rather good plan. It's actually quite effective, and it's a timeless strategy as well. Because here's the, here's the thinking behind it, is that if you can get somebody to think like me, you can get them to behave like me, and if they think like me, they behave like me, they will start to believe like me. And this is not lost on us either, because this is actually what marketers do to us in the world in which we live today. They know if they can get you to think about a product, if they can get you to start seeing yourself using that product, enjoying that product, or others seeing it and using it, they can get you to believe that you need that product. You cannot live any longer without that item. You know where we see this most powerfully? The sample stations at Costco. That's, I think, where it shows up. I'm probably not alone in this, where you show up at Costco and you're thinking, I'm only here for my toilet paper, water, and sanitizer. That's all I'm going to buy, right? Then as you're pushing your cart through Costco, you're like, oh, what's that over there? Are those, those pizza bites? I wonder if I would like pizza bites. Well, I should probably go find out if I like pizza bites or not. Surprise of surprise, I like pizza bites. Hmm. And suddenly, I cannot live without pizza bites. Repeat this three or four times as you push your cart through Costco towards the toilet paper at the very back of the shop. And before you know it, you've checked out and are piling $300 worth of groceries into the backseat of your car. See, people know if they can get you to think, to see yourself doing it, and then to believe you can live without it, it's very effective. And for those who are carrying it by Babylon, this didn't sound so bad. And it was quite effective in its purpose as well. But here's what they didn't realize. They didn't realize at times that they were being stripped of their identity, that they were being robbed of their dignity, that they were being brought subject to the power contrary to the power of God who they had grown up under and served for their whole lives to this point. And we see this most clearly, particularly in verse 6 and 7, where it says that among those who were taken from Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Introduce Daniel and his friends. Some of the best of the best, taken from Judah into exile in Babylon, enrolled in this three-year program. This reprogramming, this enculturation. And we see this at the most clear sense of trying to rob them of their identity, steal them of their dignity. When it says the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now in our culture, people change their names sometimes. And it's really a matter of preference quite often. Where if you like your middle name better than your first name, as you get a little older, you might do a little switch. Where you want to shorten your name or change your name, if you want to just choose a bit of an alias for some reason, you can go down, fill out a form at a government office, pay a couple of dollars, and voila, your name has changed. It happens in our culture quite often. We don't think too terribly much about it because it's based upon preference. But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, your name was the core source of your identity. Because when somebody heard your name, they could determine what family you came from. 
they could determine the level of honor or shame associated with that family. And at times, events around your birth or around the situation of your family at the time of your birth, as well as which God you served. You see, the name Daniel means God is my judge. But his name was changed to Belteshar, which means Bel, protect my life. Bel being a Babylonian god. The name Mishael means who is what God is. But the name Meshach means who is what Aku is, a Babylonian god. You see, in the change of their names, they were trying to steal and rob them of their identity and their association with God. You know, up to this point, Daniel and his friends have not shown any sign of resistance to this assimilation that's happening to them. And it kind of begs the question, as all of these things have been done to them so far, it begs the question, where's the line? At what point are they going to start pushing back? At what point are they going to stand up and say something? At what point are they going to have their Popeye moment? Remember Popeye, those who are old enough to see that Popeye cartoons? What was one of Popeye's lines? You see, he would have these things happen in his life where people would kind of pick on him and harass him, give him a hard time, and he'd mumble under his pipe and not do too much. But then the time would come when Popeye would have enough and he would say, this is all I can stands and I can't stands it no more. He'd pop a can of spinach, get all swole, and he would go to war, right? This is all I can stands and I can't stands it no more. Daniel and his friends have been taken from their homes. They've submitted to this foreign education system. They've been given new names and nothing. Well, we get to verse 8 and they reach the breaking point. The scales tip suddenly in verse 8 where it says that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the food, the royal food and wine. But he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. This word resolves means he drew a line in the sand about the food. They've taken me this far and I will go no further. What was it about the food that made him do that? Some people, some suggestions, some theories say that he was trying to remain true to the law of God, that God had given to him this, this dietary restrictions. He wanted to remain kosher, if you will, probably a word you're familiar with. But if that was the case, then he was actually still able to drink wine because wine is kosher. Some people think maybe he was staying against it because to accept food from the king's table and, and to enter into this form of hospitality could very easily be equated with Daniel entering into a friendship, into an alliance, to, to perhaps entering into even a, a covenant or a treaty of lordship under the king. You know, the problem, I think, that he's staying against here is the fact that this lavish food that was prepared for them was part of what's referred to as the care and the feeding of gods. See, they would take these animals and, and they would sacrifice them and prepare them for a meal. But then they would first, before they went to the king's table, they would take these plates full of their, their, their cooked meats and they would place them before the Babylonian gods. And they would leave them there and then they would walk away and they would allow the Babylonian gods, these idols, to enjoy this feast. And they could eat whatever they want and they'd come back a little later on and they would take whatever the gods didn't eat, which... The gods were kind of fussy eaters. They didn't often eat too much. And they would take that and they would then deliver that to the king's table. And that's what the king would then eat, the best of the best. Now on the way from the gods to the king's table, there are some servants who would make a little detour and they'd take a little bit to these people part of the enculturation program and that they could eat it. So this is what Daniel's taking a stand against. 
See, Daniel wasn't fighting back when his name and his honor were violated. But when God's name was profaned, he said, this is all I can stand. And I cannot stand it no more. And he took a stand. And he chose to stand out in the crowd. If you've ever felt yourself in a situation like that, the pressure is building inside of you. You're thinking, this is not okay. Somebody needs to say something. Somebody needs to do something. Somebody needs to take a stand. If you've ever felt that, you know how hard it is to actually take a stand. It's so much easier. It's so much more common to just go with the flow. To sit back, to shrink back a little bit and say, you know what, maybe, maybe next time. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe it'll work itself. Maybe it's not as bad as it all sounds. Daniel very easily could have just allowed fear to rule him that day. He could have very easily said, well, if I stand up, everyone's going to look at me. Everyone's going to think that I'm weird. They're going to think poorly of me. They're going to think that there's that, there's that radical guy. Careful if you associate with him. Daniel could have allowed the thoughts of, well, what am I going to miss out on? Because the food looks so good. And, oh, there's pizza bites on that tray. He could have rationalized. Just a few bites won't hurt. Just, just a little. I, I have to eat anyways. Just a few bites, just, just in moderation, it'll be okay. So here's the thing. If you're going to stand out for God, rationalizing, half-hearted efforts often don't cut it. And if you're going to stand out, and difficult as that is, it's very unlikely that victory will be had in the moment if you didn't make other decisions ahead of time. You see, quite often standing out looks like a one-time moment, a one-time decision in the moment. But I can tell you this, people who are successful in taking a stand, if you talk to them, ask them about their story, that stand is born of many earlier decisions. And we know this in our lives in so many different ways. In, in a few months, Nadine has a race coming up. She's running a 50-kilometer race through the wilderness. I'm going to drop her off, pick her up. I'm not going to go on the race. So, uh, but <laughs> it's not my thing. <laughs> But she has an app called Couch to Marathon that she's using to help her with her training. Now, Couch to Marathon might sound like it's one step, but I think we all know it's not one step. That there are multiple steps along that way from, from Couch to Marathon. It's not just a one-time momentary decision. If you're stuck in temptation in some fashion, and you think, well, I'll get it next time. Next time that reels up, next time I'm, I'm in the midst of that temptation, I'll, I'll fight it then. I think we all know that, how that works out. Quite often, once the temptation is full-born, it's already too late. I heard an interview earlier this week from uh, the actor, probably, well, you know, the actor Ben Affleck. New movie coming out, and he was sharing a bit of his journey, of his journey to rediscovering his faith, which I, I didn't know he had uh, roots in the Christian faith, but he's currently rediscovering his faith as part of his recovery from alcoholism. And when he talked about the temptation that he lives with when it comes to alcohol, he said, I know I can't win the fight between drink two and six. I know I can't win that one. So I don't fight those ones. I make the fight before I even have drink one. You see, success comes fighting the battle beforehand. It's standing out for God. The first step will not often be in that moment to stand under our own strength. It begins with earlier decisions where we take the steps to know, to trust, to live for God. And by doing that in advance, it gives us the strength to stand. This was Daniel's example. 
as we're going to see as we read through these stories in the weeks ahead, that in every situation he finds himself in, his faith was solid and secure. We're going to see that he had a regular pattern of daily prayer life that he was invested in. We're going to see that he lived a life of devotion to the Lord. That he daily made decisions that prepared him so that when the moment came, he was ready to stand. Notice we can see in this story that just as important as what you stand for is how you stand. When we think about making a stand, even if we're prepared, we do the work in advance and we feel like the moment has come and I'm prepared for this and I'm going to stand, how we do it is critically important as well. Sometimes we think of this concept of taking a stand and we, and we have this picture come to our mind, the, these scenes of, of picket lines and barricades and, and rallying people to a cause. But Daniel's stand, it was clear, it was bold, but it wasn't public. He, he didn't get everyone together and start a hunger strike. He didn't sort of quietly one night get everyone kind of together protest and lead a big rebellion. What did he do? Verse 11, he goes to the chief official and he says, test your servant for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And, and, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So this guard over them agreed and he tested them for 10 days. See, Daniel chose to not only stand, but to stand in the right way. Why was this the right way? I think there's two important things we can look at when we talk about how we take a stand. First of all, from the example of Daniel, we can see that the stand that he took honored God in the situation that God had placed him in. Remember I said at the very beginning, the first passage, this was not beyond God's control. God was not stymied or blindsided by the fact that Nebuchadnezzar carried them into the situation. God gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. The stand that they took honored the fact that I'm in this situation and God has willed it. They did not kick up a fuss. They did not say, God, how could you allow this to happen? I'm going to take a stand against you before I take a stand against them. That wasn't his response. The stand he took was a demonstration that he had faith that God was still at work, that God was still present, and that God was going to do things in him and through him. The second thing we see here is that the type of stand Daniel took honored the authorities that have been placed over him by the will of God placing him in that situation. And here's the importance of this one. Because he honored the authorities, he respectfully went quietly and asked permission to take the stand. The difference it made is huge because it allowed him to stay in the game. If he had kicked up a fuss, if he had protested, if he had tried to lead a rebellion, one of three things would have happened. He either would have been kicked out of the program, he either would have been put in jail, or most likely they would have cut his head off and killed him. Not much influence left in that situation. He would have been executed for taking the stand in that fashion. And the proof that this was effective, the proof is in the pudding. Not that he was allowed to eat pudding at the time. It was vegetables and water only. But the proof was in the pudding. Because at the end of the 10 days, when they looked, at the, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And they had a diet of vegetables. And this being International Women's Day, let's give mom props for telling us to eat our vegetables. Because they are good for you. That's, that's
That's what this is about, isn't it? Eat your vegetables. Isn't that the message from this? No. That's true. That's true. Mom was right. We should listen to mom, but that's, that's not the message that's within this. It's not about the vegetables and the wine. It's about the fact that God was honored in this situation. God was honored in this situation. Daniel was daily living for him and therefore had the strength to stand, up among, stand out among the crowd that he was in. It's about the fact that he was a witness to the world around him of God's power and of the goodness of following God's laws and God's ways for living. It's a story about the fact that we need to be mindful that it is possible to stand up for the right things, but to do it in a wrong way. See, Daniel chose to stand out in faith, so God made him an outstanding example of faith. Daniel chose to stand out in faith, so God made him an outstanding example of faith for us to follow and to emulate. See, Daniel and his friends were blessed by God. He gave them incredible knowledge. He gave them incredible understanding. And they excelled in their program that they were in. For these three years, they excelled in their program. And they not only learned the culture and the religion and the language and the history and, and were prepared for service in the king's court. At the same time, God gave them special abilities to be able to understand and interpret dreams, which we're going to see as critical to their success in the future. And at the end of the three years, they were brought before King Nebuchadnezzar and they stood out from all the rest. Verse 19, it says, the king talked with them. And he found none equal to David, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them to be ten times better than anybody else. Now Nebuchadnezzar would have thought that this was because of the success of his plan. Look at this wonderful program I've designed that has brought these men to this great level of knowledge. But they knew it wasn't because of his plan. It was because of God's plan. It was because of their faithfulness to God had released God's power in them and through them. And the author of this book of Daniel knows it as well because notice which names he uses to say when they were standout examples of faith, they were not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were Daniel. They were Hananiah. They were Mishael. They were Azariah. They were the sons identified still three years later with God. So they may have learned the language. They may have learned the history, they may have learned the culture, but they did not lose their identity as people who are identified and still faithful to the one true and living God. And as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, this positioned Daniel to have incredible influence. This gave him the ability for decades to come where kings would hear the truth of the one true God. Where kings and their servants and subjects would come to serve and honor the one true God. And Daniel and his friends, even though they would continue for decades to live in exile, they would continue to live as exiles, as outstanding examples of faith. You know, very few of us in this room or even in this world will be called to stand before kings and multitudes in such a fashion. But all followers of Jesus Christ are called to stand out for God in every situation into which he places them. And we can all acknowledge, it's not hard to acknowledge that that's hard to do. No one's going to pretend or suggest that it's easy to live in a land where the prevailing culture is different than the convictions, the beliefs, and the values that some people in this whole room, that most people in this room would hold. And when there's conflict between those, to stand up. No one's going to pretend that's easy. 
And at times in the past, the church and, and Christians have chose to react different ways. Some have chosen to react by withdrawing. They feel that tension rise up, and so they withdraw, and they separate, and they, they kind of hide out from the world, and they just cloister behind the walls of the church. But when that happens, they're not just preserving themselves, but they're also removing their voice. They're removing their influence regarding God's truth from the greater conversation. Other people in the church, other Christians choose to push back. To say, we got to cause disruption. we got to print out angry signs and say angry things in the name of Jesus. What ends up happening there is they get excluded from the conversation. They end up being excluded. They end up being labeled, being seen as an invalid, unreasonable option. You see, this fight and flight is commonly how a lot of people historically have responded to the tension where a prevailing culture tries to enculturate. And the end result is the secular world gets more secular and the divide increases. Now, there are times. There are times when there needs to be a stand that is bold, that is public, and that is unequivocal in our position on certain things. There's a time when that is appropriate and there's a time when that is necessary. There are hills that I believe are worth dying on. And we will stand and fight upon those hills that we're dying on. But hear me say this. We need to be cautious because not every hill is worth dying on. Not every hill is. It is possible to stand out for the right things in the wrong way. And if we stand for the right things in the wrong way, I would suggest to you that we're not honoring God. Because while our convictions may be in line with him, our actions outward and our witness is not. So what do we do? How do we know? Well, I want to leave you today with two principles from the teachings of Jesus. That will give us perhaps some insight into what this can look like in the days ahead of us. Jesus said before he was taken from this world in John 17... Verse 15 through 16, kind of paraphrase those verses for us in a way that you've probably heard before where Jesus said, I called you to be in the world, but not of the world. You see, if we're in the world, but not of the world, this, this flight option, this option to sit back and avoidance is, is, is not possible because that means that we're neither in the world nor of the world. We're not following through on the first part of this, that we're called to be in the midst of that tension. And if we keep reading through John chapter 17, we get to verse 21, we find out what the purpose of this is. Jesus says, I call you to be in the world, but not of the world, in verse 21, so that the world may believe. If the world's going to believe, they need to have people in the conversation, in the midst of this, who are living for, living differently for the things of God and bringing forth the truth and the grace and the love of God. Peter talks about this when Peter says, you are living as aliens and strangers in the foreign land. One of my fears with the modern day church as well is that we are no longer aliens and strangers. We have become more enculturated and no longer look any different than the world around us. That's the other challenge within this. Is to be in the world but not of the world. Why? So that the world may believe. Where may God be calling you to stand out for him today? Is it possible there's somewhere in your world, some, some moment coming up later this week, maybe even later this day, where you're going to have an opportunity to stand out for him? What's happening in your life? What opportunities is he orchestrating? And even if it's in the midst of a difficult one, do not believe that he has abandoned you. Believe instead that he is preparing to use you in the midst of that.
And if you find yourself in such a moment and the opportunity arises and you feel like this need, I need to stand because I've reached my moment where I can't take it no more and I need to stand, how are we to respond? First, if you are living daily for the Lord, investing in reading his word, investing in times of prayer, taking steps of faith and finding that he is good and true to arrive up and show up in those moments, then you will have a greater sense of power to rise and to stand. But secondly, consider the words of Jesus also in Matthew 10, 16, where he says, I send you out like sheep among wolves. That's not an easy situation. That is a dangerous situation to be sheeps among, sheep among wolves. Sheep living among wolves feel the tension. They want to run away, but they live within the midst of that, the conflict of two cultures. And since you are sheep among wolves, therefore be shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And I think that describes Daniel. I think it describes the example of Daniel who was in as innocent as doves. He didn't mount an angry assault. He acted civilly. He went before the powers that were over him and, and made an honest request. And God honored him in that and made it possible for the, him to find favor in those who were over him. He was shrewd in the fact that he stood out instead of being chased out of the conversation of the situation. And as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, he was therefore able to exercise a significant influence on the godless world in which he found himself. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. It's hard to take that intentional effort, but it's necessary. It's hard to make that choice ahead of time, but it will prepare you. It will be a struggle at times, but when those struggles come, I believe you'll be prepared to stand up. And I, for one, want to encourage you to stand up with me right now as we come to a time of prayer. Because I would love to remember it as one who stood out rather than one who bent in. Heavenly Father, your people who are gathered before you here today, God, there are situations going on in their lives where, where there's a sense to, to back up, to, to lay low, to, to hide amongst the crowd. And, and Lord, we want to be people who stand for you. So I pray whatever situations may be going on right now, whatever ones may be coming up this week, that, that the spirit that is alive within us, that the spirit that is alive around us and through us would just prompt us, remind us to say this is the moment. Be innocent as doves and shrewd as snakes, but stand for things of Christ. Stand for the name of Jesus Christ, who called us not just to find forgiveness, to find salvation, to find freedom, to find hope, to find the life that's truly better with Christ. He didn't just call us to, to have that and to hoard it to ourselves, but to be a witness to the world that they too could find that Jesus Christ loves them, gave his life for them, and longs to live eternally with them. May we be witnesses to those in our homes, in our communities, in our lives, in this very church in this day ahead, Lord. We stand up for the name of Jesus Christ.